Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm executive producer Gina Delvac. And I'm producer Jordan Bailey. So, Jordan, when we were planning out what did we want to do for Pride, one of the things that came up over and over again was how obsessed you were with Tori Peters' book, Detransition Baby. I'm so excited you got to talk to her. Yes, I was literally obsessed. It was the kind of thing that I just could not stop talking about, couldn't stop reading. But it was one of those books where like, I couldn't stop reading it, but also I tried to read it as slow as possible because I just didn't want it to end. I was like trying to savor every moment I had with the characters. Um, but you know, I did end up finishing it and I'm really glad I did. Um, But yeah, this was one of my favorite books this year. And I had a really great conversation with Tori. um, And I'm, I'm so glad I got to talk with her. Thank you so much for being on Call Your Girlfriend. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm really thrilled to be here. Yeah, I read your book earlier this year and I was like completely obsessed with it. I It's one of the books that I just like, every time I had a conversation with a friend, I was like, have you read Detransition Baby yet? Like you have to read this book. I honestly recommended it like no less than a hundred times. So I am like very excited to get to talk with you about it. But for anybody who hasn't had the pleasure of reading it yet, how would you describe Detransition Baby? You know, I I need to come up with like my elevator pitch that's a lot better. (laughs) But basically, it's the story of Reese, who's this trans woman in her 30s in Brooklyn. And you can sort of think of her as like a Fleabag-esque character. Mm -hmm. And the action kicks off when her ex, who's a detransitioned trans woman now living as a man named Ames approaches mm-hmm. her and is like, I got my boss pregnant. You've always wanted to be a mom. Do you want to make like a family together? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a pretty wild premise. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, that's just like, that's just the first chapter. So yeah. Really go from there. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, one of the first things that caught my eye was the dedication on the very first page. So the book is dedicated to divorced cis women. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the connections you see between trans women and divorced cis women. Yeah. um, You know, it's it's funny. I made that dedication and then because I I wrote it, I I wrote that dedication pretty early on in like the writing process. Mm -hmm. And... um, it was funny because I did. I forgot that I am also a divorcee, so it's like in a certain way I accidentally dedicated the book to myself. I'm not a cis woman, but mm-hmm. I'm like a divorcee. Um, but it, basically, it happened where I was like, uh, I was in my mid 30s, and I was like looking around for like basically someone to show me like how do you live, mm-hmm. not how do you be a woman, which is so much of what the transition process is, but like once you've arrived what do you do now Mm -hmm. and um 
And I think that's a, we're in a funny moment for trans women to figure this out. So I was asking like older trans women, how do you do it? And they're like, we're not sure because the opportunities for us are so different than they were 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I started reading all these, I found myself reading these books by a divorced cis woman. Like that was like the only thing I want to read. I want to read like Ferrante. I want to read like Rachel Kosk. I want to read Jenny Offal. I wanted to read Sula. I just like, I wanted these stories of women who were starting over at some point in their life. Mm -hmm. And I realized I was like, oh, the trajectory of transition for me and the trajectory of divorce are really similar. It's like you live your life harboring or live your life like working or operating under certain illusions. And then suddenly there comes a point where those illusions no longer work or they fail. Mm -hmm. And you have to kind of start over only you have to start over without those illusions that you've relied on so long and you can't get better. Mm-hmm. And the people who had a sort of game plan for doing that and sort of told stories about this is what it means to start your life over when you're 35 or 30 or 45 or whatever, were divorced women and mm-hmm. they had a game plan to deal with things like bitterness. They had a game plan for deal- with dealing with living. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like, oh, I've actually learned so much from these conversations with divorced women. I actually think that I have something to say back as a trans woman that has some thoughts about gender, some thoughts about my process to say back to them. And maybe we could enter into a conversation together. Mm-hmm. I love that. One of the things that also kind of uh, stuck with me is throughout the book, you use the word transsexual and you use it a lot. And at first it kind of caught me by surprise because I'm a cis person, I'm a cis woman. Um, and I've really learned to like stay away from that word. I've learned like that's that's not a word that we use anymore. Um, so I would love to hear you talk about why you choose to use it and what kind of appeals to you about that word. I mean, it's funny, when I used it, it wasn't really a choice. Like, mm. I hadn't thought, like, I, I get asked about that word a lot. Mm. And I just use it because that's what my friends use. Like, mm-hmm. it was, it's actually just like my vocabulary. And then suddenly I was like, why are you using this offensive word? And I was like, oh, was it offensive? Like, because that's just how my friends and I, we describe each other as transsexuals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that that actually speaks to the ways that language just constantly evolving what is like the okay thing to say Mm -hmm. so that like if you go back to the 60s transsexual was a polite word Mm. and it was a really specific word for like if you've had some surgery but not all of the surgeries Mm -hmm. you were a transsexual whereas if you had had all of the surgeries you were a sex change like Mm. a sex change was a noun Mm. and now to call somebody a sex change would be like the most horribly offensive thing you could say is like hey you're a sex change right but then kind of people started saying like oh well that's sex change is offensive we'll use the other word transsexual and then there was like bigger umbrellas of like transgender that included all these different types of people but for me and my friends, I think we use the word transsexual just because it's a funnier word. <laughs> like it's this pulpy seventies word, you mm-hmm. know, and if you're going to call yourself something, do you want to like call yourself the thing that like you mark off in the doctor's office or do you mm-hmm. want to like call yourself the thing that was like in a 
70s exploitation flick mm-hmm. like that's much funnier and cooler <laughs> and so it was like well, if i have if i can choose a word that has sex in it or i can choose the word <laughs> that has gender in it i'm gonna choose the one that has sex in it, yeah of course know? every time yeah it does kind of feel <laughs> like a word that you can really sink your teeth into you know it feels like it has a lot of like there's a lot of there there i feel like yeah four syllables yeah you know, it's just like really it's just it goes on forever all yeah. those like s's so <laughs> it's a sexy um, word there's a lot of like fun sounds in it yeah yeah you can you can kind of lisp it and it's kind of sexual yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> totally <laughs> and uh being able to do that, like being able to like say that and joke around with it, I think it like it comes from a place of comfort. You mm-hmm. know, like for me, I'm not I don't have any problem with being so transsexual, mm-hmm. and so to say the word in you know in in all sorts of different ways is 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 kind of just like a pleasure. Yeah, and, and if you're a writer, like choose the word that gives you pleasure. Totally. I'm curious if there um, has been any pushback on it, like from other trans folks or people in the trans community. Has anybody been like, you know, we don't, we I mean, don't use that word. Like, does anybody push back on it? I'm just curious. I think it's more it, like the New York times like interviewed me about it. Mm. I was kind of like, you guys barely reviewed my book, but you <laughs> want to know why I use transsexuals. Like, <laughs> so I, I've gotten like DMs about it where mm. it's more like curiosity mm-hmm. and, and I think it's it's oftentimes people who want to have proper etiquette mm-hmm. and for me like sort of my approach to this is I think that this etiquette's going to change again in six years mm-hmm. like when I transitioned everybody was trying to say that you should write trans with an asterisk after it because like mm-hmm. encoding the asterisk means like all inclusive mm-hmm. after it I, I don't code so i can't <laughs> explain too much more than that mm-hmm. but that was like the that was like the fad was to say trans asterisk. and now if you were to put trans asterisks you would like out yourself as like horribly out of touch mm-hmm. you know so mm-hmm. and that was just like six years ago and so i'm sure that in another six years it'll be a different language mm-hmm. and so what i generally feel is like i don't really care what words people use it's like part of the same gesture of like dedicating the book to divorced cis women is that like, I'm really interested in having a conversation. I'm interested in people just like in being able to share with people. And I don't want to expect that somebody's read like an entire book of etiquette in order mm-hmm. to talk to me. Mm-hmm. You can tell when somebody's coming to you with respect and like, okay, maybe they get the word wrong, but if they're speaking to you respectfully, that comes across and someone can use the most proper terms and speak to you with disdain and disrespect Mm -hmm. so kind of as in interactions with all humans like just come with respect and i'm not going to worry terribly about the word i mean that's me personally and i'm sure that they're like if the next trans person you'll interview will be like tori's wrong (laughs) (laughs) so you're welcome everyone (laughs) who have just gotten into trouble Um, I love that getting into trouble. Well, actually, speaking of getting into trouble, um, I would love to hear also about your decision to include a ma- um, a main character who has detransitioned because I feel like you know there's a way in which that maybe could feel a little bit like politically risky. You know, the sort of like taboo topic of detransitioning. Um, and I'm curious, like, what made you want to include that aspect of transness in the book in such like a central way? There's three things. One is that, like, transition looms for mm-hmm. trans people, and I think that you can 
either pretend that that doesn't exist or you can talk about it. Like mm-hmm. sometimes when things get really hard, you're like, it'd be easier for me to detransition. Mm-hmm. And if you make it a taboo, then there's shame around it. Mm-hmm. If you can't talk about it, then like shame occurs. And when if you do detransition, you become ostracized. And so a way to sort of depressurize that is to just talk about it, to be like, yeah, of course, sometimes you feel this way. Like I had periods in my life where things were really hard and it wasn't that I wasn't trans, but it was like, things would be so much easier if I detransitioned. Mm-hmm. The, the second thing is that I basically don't care what transphobes think about this word mm. and think about this concept. Like, I think that the idea that somebody else has weaponized uh, an idea and used it against trans people doesn't mean that I just cede that concept to them and pretend like it doesn't exist. Mm. I, in fact, I like, I don't. I'm not going to like write based on the premises of transphobes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to write on the premises of like what I've experienced and what my friends have experienced. And so one thing is to just basically be like, I don't actually care that other people have politicized it and weaponized it. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to speak to it that way. And then the third thing is that most people have at this point sort of have an idea of, of what a transition narrative should look like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in a certain way that is overdetermined. And if you write about change and like missing things with the transition narrative it's like especially trans people will sort of like gag at you they'll be like that's a little like it's a little done we've like seen it a lot Mm -hmm. but detransition is just transition in reverse Mm -hmm. and so you can kind of start talking about the ways that transition affects us outside of that overly determined narrative and so aims for instance detransitions and he finds himself missing his his old community and his ex-girlfriend doesn't accept his new gender Mm -hmm. and things like that and so that all the things that are sort of the tropes of transition Mm. can be taken outside of transition destabilized and shown like how these are just like interactions between us as like individuals Mm -hmm. um that are about grief and about missing each other and about you know no longer feeling included or not feeling quite right only without all of like the sort of meaning that's calcified around mm-hmm. transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I would love to talk about one of my favorite scenes in the book, um, a scene that really stuck with me that I think actually speaks to a lot of what you were just talking about with detransitioning. I love the scene where Amy and Patrick are shopping at the Glamour Boutique. Um, and mm-hmm. I felt like I was on such an emotional roller coaster when I was reading that. Like, I was really nervous for Amy at first, like going into the date and meeting up with Patrick. And then I, I shared like her hesitancy and her anxiety in kind of the first moments in the store. And then I was so excited for them and I was so happy when they were trying on clothes. And then like, you know, when the mom and daughter came in at the end, like I could just feel my heart sinking. Um, And I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that scene and why that specific story felt important to include. That was one of like the harder things for me to write. Like I I like, I like to think that that scene ended up being like funny and, and, and not overly heavy for me it was a way to talk about shame Mm -hmm. like ultimately Mm -hmm. it was a scene about shame yeah and uh, about dissociation also Mm -hmm. so i i was sort of like 
I wanted to talk about the, the ways that Amy and Patrick were taking pleasure in, in sort of dressing up and then suddenly seen from another vantage what they were doing was perverted mm-hmm. and, and, and creepy, mm-hmm. you know? And the ways that they saw themselves as perverted and creepy mm-hmm. and the ways that that like shut them down emotionally mm-hmm. and how that switch that shame can like trigger like how how it's instant you know mm-hmm. like a moment something that can be so fun you just shift a vantage all of a sudden and then it's it it becomes a thing that you can never speak about mm-hmm. you know yeah and so to some degree i've found in my writing that when i write about shame it dispels it it spells it for me it also dispels it for readers mm-hmm. so i wanted to write about things that are like like that much more than detransitioning it's actually the glamour boutique scene that trans people have been like i can't believe you wrote about that mm. because i wrote about things that are oftentimes like the idea that dressing up in 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 sexy clothes could feel sexy mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. that 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 well that just means you have a fet. you're not a woman you just have a fetish mm. and that's actually something that is often really weaponized against trans women mm-hmm. even though i think that cis women also sometimes if you dress up sexy you feel sexy yeah you know? and it's it's not like that doesn't mean that you're not a woman or you're a pervert or something it mm-hmm. just means like oh you get to confirm your gender and it feels good no matter what your gender is to confirm it mm-hmm. so i wrote about like and that basically being like yeah sometimes it feels good to confirm your gender was really like Tori, you've like given weapons to like all of these people who are going to say that we're just getting off and we're just fetishists. Mm. And to me, the fact that everybody's so afraid of that being said is the result of shame. Mm-hmm. Like that's the result of a kind of a way that psychiatrists, that like transphobes, that all these people have have made trans women ashamed and especially ashamed of having any sexuality at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was like, well, I'm just going to write about this sexuality and we're going to write about these moments. And I wasn't sure where it was going to go as I started writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing that happened is I wrote that scene in which at the end of it, Amy's really dissociated mm-hmm. in, when she's like hooking up with Patrick. Mm-hmm. And that was at the exact same time that the New Yorker published that short story, Cat Person. Mm-hmm. Do you know that story? Oh gosh, yeah, of course. <laughs> which is also about a woman dissociating during like sex that makes her feel bad about herself Mm -hmm. and to me it was like i wrote this whole thing that i thought was like this like really specifically trans experience of dissociation Mm. and then i and that it was like this deeply shameful thing that like oh it's so dangerous for me to share this and then i like went you know it's like six months later the new yorker tells a story of dissociation by a cis woman and it's the most popular short story ever to be published on um, the new yorker Mm -hmm. and it was basically what it showed me was like these experiences that are thought to be so specifically trans or maybe so specifically cis aren't Mm -hmm. like the what happens when you have bad sex and you dissociate that's like an experience of just like being in a body and feeling weird sometimes yeah and that like this is part of that conversation that i wanted to have and so sharing the thing that's like here's a really vulnerable thing from a trans woman's experience i'm going to put it out there and see actually the ways that like cis women might relate to that and that's going to make trans women feel less ashamed and it's going to make hopefully cis women understand better that like what trans women are going through is not other Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. 
Totally. Um, I went to uh, a virtual talk that you did with Roxane Gay a while back. Um, and one mm-hmm. of the things that I loved from that conversation is you talked about having this like very expansive definition of queerness, especially when it comes to somebody like Katrina in the book. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about like what I mean, what queer means to you, that's like such a uh, a broad uh, way to frame it. But I guess like, I'm curious who in your mind can be included in the queer family that we might not normally think of and how that's working in your book. Well, I really want to be careful to ever sort of police the borders of who gets to be queer and mm-hmm. who doesn't. Mm-hmm. Largely, I'm interested in queerness as a like a way that you do things mm-hmm. rather than like an identity. And I think that what ends up happening is we lean into identity and then we start placing each other as to like who's queer enough mm-hmm. and i think like if you just do queer things you're queer mm-hmm. um and to that <laughs> end what is happening with katrina who's attracted to men mm-hmm. wants to be a mom has like you know a management job in a advertising agency in no way would seem to be queer mm-hmm. but the fact that like what she's understanding about herself is that certain heteronormative ways of doing her life aren't serving her anymore and that she's looking for like models of of feeling satisfaction in relationships with men mm-hmm. feeling satisfaction in relationships from family that sort of like the old models aren't offering her mm-hmm. and i think that oftentimes queerness isn't necessarily like only about oh, you're attracted to like the same sex or same gender, however you want to define it, or you like like leather, whatever. But are you looking for like models of like being in relationship to other people that aren't the models that are like given to you by the dominant culture? Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, I think that that can be queer, Mm -hmm. especially if there's a certain sort of political bent to it. Yeah. Um, And I think that for Katrina, what she was discovering in this book is she was she always had this sense that like she didn't want to live maybe in like just a sort of heteronormative conventional marriage, but she didn't have the political language for it. And in that she was coming into queer because she was discovering a sort of political language for it and the ways that that political language allowed her to feel like she owned her desires in a way that she never had. Mm-hmm. That was like a a sort of early discovery of a kind of queerness mm-hmm. that I think that could be really useful for a lot of women who are who are heterosexual. Like, I don't think that queerness, and I think this is like, uh, this isn't only my ideas. I think that there's there's other people out there who've written about like heteropessimism or like the disappointment of like heterosexuality right now. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that in that case, heterosexuality means attraction to men. I think it's like heterosexuality as it's like, practiced mm-hmm. and the political implications of that practice right it's and like so, the capital h yeah, yeah totally and so you know i don't know what the exact opposite of heterosexuality is but i'm like willing to sort of basically be like it's probably like some kind of queerness mm-hmm. i maybe don't know how to name your queerness but if that's your queerness and that feels good to you and that political like you know veil over it or lens over it feels right to you like i'm not gonna say that's not queer and i'm gonna in fact hope that people who for whom it's useful take up what's useful to them
one of the big themes in this book, is about how traditional motherhood and family structures are often just out of reach for trans women. Um, and I'm wondering if in your own life, in your own real life, if you have examples of trans women who have created family structures um, that work for them and, and what those structures look like. The funny thing is I wrote, the, there's a Alexander Chi quote that I've been interested in recently, which is like, be careful what you write in fiction. <laughs> it has a tendency to come true. Mm -hmm. And so I finished this book and then I met this woman who was who, living with her husband, her ex-husband at the time mm -hmm. with an, a then nine-year-old and also her sister. Mm -hmm. And so what has ended up happening is that, I mean, it took a lot of, you know, it, it wasn't easy necessarily, but um, so I'm engaged to that woman now. Wow, the husband has moved out, but lives down the down the way mm -hmm. from um, my partner, my, Chris, who's the woman. Mm -hmm. And Chris and I have my apartment, and so Chris spends half the week with me, half the week in the old apartment where her sister lives full time with her son. Mm -hmm. And then half the week, the son goes and lives with his father down the block. Wow. And <laughs> it's like, we didn't plan it. I wasn't like looking for this. Like uh, my, my interest in motherhood in some ways was like exploring this through fiction. I wasn't intending to like recreate family or something, mm -hmm. but it's sort of like, actually these are different ways that trans women can find themselves doing it. And so what has ended up happening is that essentially um, her son has four adults mm -hmm. who he can go to at all at any different moment. He can mm -hmm. go to his father, he can go to me, he can go to Chris and he can go to his aunt. Mm -hmm. And he has like different places with like different kind of vibes and living situations. And, and it's been two years now. I like to think that he is flourishing in yeah. a way that maybe he wasn't even before. Yeah. But I know other people who also like have small communities and make space for each other in, in ways that our families, um, not necessarily with children right now, but it, I think making space in a way that where there could one day be children. Well, that sounds beautiful to me. <laughs> I'm like, that sounds like a, a beautiful, beautiful family. And also congratulations on your engagement. That's like, that's amazing. Thank you. So throughout the book, um, you are very clear that Reese and Ames and Amy's experience are of white trans women and that you yourself write from the perspective of a white trans woman. And you make a real point, I think, throughout the book to highlight that the experiences of trans women of color are very different from those of Amy and Reese and like even of yourself. And I would love to hear why it felt important to make this distinction, first of all. And also, I'm curious if you could talk about some of the what you see as like the defining differences between the experience of trans of white trans women and trans women of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, part of it is an artistic question that the more specific I can be about who I'm writing about, the better I can make my jokes, the better I can make my details. Mm -hmm. Like if it's clear also that I'm not trying to represent, there's a thing that happens when you're like, Oh, I'm, I'm representing trans women mm -hmm. in this. And then you get like weighed down with that burden of representation where you can't have characters be bitchy or you can't mm -hmm. have characters, you know, do things that are messed up because it's like, well, now I'm saying that all trans women do this. Mm -hmm. So when I can be like specific about what's like the milieu that I'm writing about, who am I writing about? 
I can be more and more specific, which in some ways then makes it universal in the way that like, I think many writers that I admire, like, um, you know, I think famously Philip Roth, you know, like wrote about Jews in Newark and mm-hmm. then that became like universal for a sort of immigrant experience by going really, really specific. And so there's a way in which it's like, I'm not just writing about white trans women. It's like, I'm writing about white trans women in Brooklyn mm-hmm. down to like a certain neighborhood mm-hmm. <laughs> and it lets me make better jokes. Like if I make fun of like Reese for wanting a, a KitchenAid stand mixer, <laughs> less funny because it's Reese. Like mm-hmm. Reese is trying to be bougie. Mm-hmm. And whereas if I was like saying that about like a Latina immigrant, like all she really cares about is a KitchenAid stand mixer. Like that joke falls flat. It mm-hmm. feels wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, if like, if that's who's being addressed. So part of it's like a, just like make your jokes work kind of thing mm-hmm. from a craft level. And then I think it's also like, there's a sense that if I make clear who I am, it also makes space for trans women of color or black trans women to tell their own stories. Mm-hmm. Instead of me like taking up the whole stage and trying to speak for other people, I can basically be like, this is who I'm speaking for. And if you want to hear other things, instead of asking me to speak on those people's behalf, you just go look for their work. Mm-hmm. And it's like, to me, I'm hoping the ways that I talk about the whiteness of my characters is also like a finger pointing off stage to basically be like, there's a bunch of other people whose stories you could go look for. Mm -hmm. And it's an invitation to go look for those people's stories. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people will ask me like, well, why didn't you have black trans women in your book? And to me, I'm like, I didn't do it because that's not my experience. And also there's black trans women writing really great stories mm-hmm. and you know, you can read two books. I don't know if people realize this, but <laughs> you're allowed to like, read more than one book. You're allowed to read more than one book. And so, you know, instead of expecting my book to tell everybody else's story, go, go read another book. Yeah. And, uh, that's kind of been my approach is like, let me make clear who I'm writing about. And then if you want something else, go read it. Mm-hmm. I think that the differences are oftentimes the differences between just the white women and black women, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the, the trans aspect kind of can create certain valences, but usually like, you know, even amongst trans women, like the fights that white trans women and, and black trans women are not fights, but the disagreements mm-hmm. that we have and the ways in which we're, there's racism or scarcity or all those sort of things, they mirror the ways that racism works between white cis women and, and black cis women. Mm-hmm. So it ends up being important for a white trans woman to think about racism generally is because like if we want to like fix what's going on in our own communities, the dynamics for it are, are actually usually articulated best by, or not best, but probably most frequently by black cis women, mm-hmm. you know, just those dynamics in our smaller community. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you can if you have any like off the top of your head, um, you know, for people who like do need to go read a second book or who, who like should go read another book, um, are there black trans authors or uh, like other trans authors of color who you'd like to shout out? Sure. Uh, there's, I just was on a panel with River Solomon mm-hmm. who writes great books. There's Joss Barton who does these like amazing prose poem things. River Solomon does, uh, a kind of a spec fic, but really amazing work. Joss Barton, uh, Kai Chang, 
Uh, Tom is an Asian trans woman who's written really great stuff. Vivek Shraya is a is a trans woman um, of, uh, I think, Indian descent. Any sort of ethnicity that you're looking for, there's a trans woman who is writing it. Mm-hmm. Or one of my favorite books is by Jackie S., who is a black trans woman. Oh, I really want to recommend Lote, L-O-T-E, by Shola Von Reinhard, mm-hmm. a Scottish-Nigerian writer mm-hmm. who just won a, a, a big award in Scotland for mm-hmm. this book, Lote, about kind of finding the figure of of in the sort of archive of British dandyism and like sort of Stephen Tennant and Avdelon Law, like where are the black people in these stories? Mm-hmm. And, and Sheldon Reinhard sort of created a fictional version of that world of like the 20s dandy sort of decadent thing. That book is excellent. I could go on for a long time, <laughs> but I think the point is sort of like, you don't actually have to look very hard yeah. if you want to find them. You can find books by trans people of all ethnicities and you can find them in almost any genre that you're mm. looking for if you like science fiction if you like um poetry if you like horror there's there's gonna be stuff out there for you cool that's great so when mm. you were writing detransition baby did you have a particular reader in mind and i guess i'm i'm specifically wondering were you writing this book with trans people in mind yeah, I was mostly because I, I mean I had no idea that the book was going to get as big as it did. So I <laughs> okay. figured that like the only people who would read it was trans people, like mm-hmm. and probably not just like trans people in general, but like my friends. Mm-hmm. So you know, it was like my friends make cameos and things. Like Tal, like I was just hanging out with the person that Talia is based mm-hmm. on yesterday. Mm-hmm. It was funny. We were making fun of her as though she was Talia. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, remember when you said this? She's like, I never said that. Talia said that. Like, your creation based on me said that. And um, and she's like, I was never as enthralled with you as Talia was with Reese, you know? (laughs) So, um, yeah, but so, but so I was writing a lot for them. But, and early on, I think that was really more my, my audience, my imagined audience. And then as the book got, bigger and I was reading books by um certain like cis women that really meant a lot to me Mm -hmm. I like sort of was like maybe I'm addressing these other authors that I really like too like um I read Ferrante and the ways that Ferrante's characters made choices really resonated with me and I was like I want to actually like I I don't think Ferrante will ever read my book (laughs) I don't know because no one knows who she is but Mm -hmm. um like I just imagine, like, I wanted Fronte to see that, like, my characters were making choices, too, in mm-hmm. the ways that, like, she made her characters make choices. And so sometimes it'll be, like, the authors of books that I've read that really made a impression on me. Like, I sort of want to, like, talk back to those other authors. Mm-hmm. Like, not almost in real life. Like, if I ever ran into, like, Rachel Kosker or, or Ferrante, who I was reading to think about motherhood and divorce... I wouldn't actually want to be like, look what I did to their like face, <laughs> mm-hmm. but like in a sort of like the conversations, like a back and I, I like to think of it as like a like a sort of tennis game mm-hmm. um, with authors just kind of volleying back and forth, different mm-hmm. things. Yeah, 
I love that. Um, so this is a little bit of a, a spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't um, read the book. And also, I, I'm not quite sure if we'll leave this in the interview yet, but I am really curious, like as a reader. So at the end of the book, you choose to leave the question of whether these three people actually create a family together. Like that question is left unanswered. And I would love to know why you made that decision to kind of leave it open ended at the end. For me, I think that that's the the question of how to make a family in this particular moment is a generational question. I think like, um, you know, are we going to keep doing the same things that we've always been doing and maybe they aren't working or, you know, for the characters, are you just going to repeat your patterns forever? Mm -hmm. Or are you going to like decide to do something new? Mm -hmm. And so the... And I think that's the question for like many generations, like every generation has to answer it. It it sort of harkens back to what I called the sex in the city problem, mm -hmm. where there's like four models for how to live. You, you know, find a husband, have a baby, have a career, do art mm -hmm. um, for finding meaning in life. Mm -hmm. But everybody has to reinvent them. And I think that the, the, like the question of how to reinvent family, how to reinvent finding meaning is it's not up to me to say like this is how to do it like mm -hmm. when i talk about like oh here's my family with like my fiance and her son now it's like that's my way that i figured out using ideas that i think are generational mm -hmm. but how other people are going to do it i don't want to prescribe to them mm -hmm. i don't want to say this is you should just get three people and share a baby like that's <laughs> not maybe the answer you know for everybody mm -hmm. so it's a bit of a provocation especially to trans women which is like this book is a is a question which is like are we going to keep repeating the same patterns that we've that we've been doing for 40 years mm -hmm. or are we going to do something new mm -hmm. are we going to find something new are we going to create new structures for families and i'm not the person who's going to prescribe how to do that but i am going to like demand of my readers that that if something's not working for them that they think about how to fit, how to make a new life mm -hmm. i think that's actually also true for a lot of cis women mm -hmm. that you know, if things aren't working, how are you going to make new families? How are you going to make motherhood work for you? Because right now there's a spate of books, all in fiction, about how motherhood's like not working for people. Like mm -hmm. there's The Need by Helen Phillips. Mm -hmm. Like I'm really looking forward to Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder mm -hmm. that's coming out this summer. And it's all about who didn't parenthood work for during the pandemic? It was yeah. mothers mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. like had to leave work, who were like, couldn't get a moment to themselves, like lost their minds during mm -hmm. the pandemic. And it's like, how are you going to reinvent this idea of motherhood and parenthood? So it's actually like going to work for you. I don't know the answer to that, but I am, I am kind of like, are, are we just going to go back? Are you going to be like the characters and go back to the old ways? Mm. Or are we going to like make a hard choice, make some compromises and figure out new ways? Mm -hmm. So that the, the structure of leaving it open is in some ways my kind of provocation. If the show becomes a, a TV series and I want to do more than one season, I'm going to have to like decide. One way or <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, it is probably not going to be the, the answer is probably not like, and then they all went home. Yeah. Like, series over. <laughs> like, the end. No, actually, I want to see, yeah, I want a season two. So they do try it. <laughs> we would love to know what kind of snacks you like. And if there is a particular snack that helped you get through the writing of this book, like what are your, what are your go-to snacks? I'm, always sort of changing my snacks but i i really like sunflower seeds mm, i like classic i like 
And I kind of think that they're like a little bit gross. Like <laughs> to eat sunflower seeds. It's like you like eat the seed. Like unless you're outside, you don't spit the seed just on the ground, right? Mm-hmm. You like spit it and like and it's like it's kind of like all of the grossness of chewing tobacco without like any of the badassness. Mm-hmm. You know? it's like, and so I like but it's like I want something to fidget on while I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Like I want I feel like other people smoke for the same reason. Like mm-hmm. it's like I want something that's just and sunflower seeds are great for that. Mm-hmm. So I eat sunflower seeds when I'm writing, and then it, and then and then I kind of run afterwards. And like that was gross. But. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever gets you through, you know, it helps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the other question is, um, you know, I call your girlfriend. We love to hear about people's best friends and their support systems, and I would love to hear about you know, who are the people closest to you? Like, do you have a best friend or a few best friends who really supported you through the writing of this book? I mean, there's a lot of different people, but I really want to talk about um, T. Clutch Fleischman, who Mm -hmm. is another writer who goes by T. Fleischman, Mm -hmm. who wrote the book, Um, Time is the Thing that a Body Moves Through. Clutch and I have known each other for... It must be almost 16 years now. Oh, wow. And we've, like, known so many iterations of each other, and we've lived in the same city at times. We've lived across the country at times. They're non-binary, but, like, when we both met, we were, like, young, sort of confused, seemingly living as men. Mm -hmm. They were, like, more from, like, a gay experience, and I was, like seemingly like from a straight experience Mm -hmm. and we we didn't like each other when we first met actually (laughs) Mm -hmm. we were like we're like who's this one and and then we just sort of started bonding and then we kind of figured out like oh we we both have these gender things going on but in different ways and then like have just been on this sort of parallel intertwined journey as as both like trans people and as writers and as like, that sometimes like sort of vagabonds or vagabonds. Mm-hmm. I would say that word. Like just kind of we've we've been all over the country, lived in like many different places, um, and so there's somebody who will tell me if I'm doing something stupid. Mm-hmm. And as, I think as a writer, it's like you have to trust your instincts. And so if someone says something stupid, that something you're doing is stupid. Most of the time, you have to be like, no. I have a vision, I don't care what you think, and I'm going to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. And so to have, like, one friend who knows you from a long time and is like, this is, like, one of your tendencies, Tori, is to do this thing, and it's, like, it's, like, not that cute, and (laughs) it's it's not going to work, you know? Mm -hmm. And to have that person you can trust and who can tell you that in a way that's, like, really loving and... um, and who's usually right, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I think the clutch has never told me that I'm being stupid, that I haven't, like, afterwards been like, oh, you're right. Yeah. Like, yeah. whoops, mm-hmm. you know? It's like, there's other people who've been like, you're stupid, and I'm like, well, I'm going to do it my way anyway, and then I felt vindicated. Mm-hmm. But the clutch is, like, one of those people who's frustratingly right about everything. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's great. Um, well, I love that, and I love that. I love that you have that in your life. That sounds... That sounds like a beautiful relationship. So I'm happy that that you have that. Um, And I'm also really happy that we got to talk. This was so fun. And I'm I'm so glad that we got to talk to you. And I just want to like, thank you again for being on Call Your Girlfriend. 
thank you so much for having me. This is like, this is so much fun. Um, I, yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Great. Um, awesome. I hope I, I hope I get more books out one day and get to talk more. Yes. So. <laughs> yes. Yes. Of course. Are you, are you working on another book? Can I ask that? I'm, yeah, I'm working on um, what I'm calling a queer financial thriller. Oh, like, those words don't usually. Yeah, queer, queer and finance. Yeah, but that's like and thriller and finance. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm thinking, like the way that like Big Short is sort of a thriller, mm-hmm. and like I'm interested in what happens. I think with the next generation of trans women who may be the first gen- generation of trans women to have access to money mm-hmm. and how are they going to behave? Mm-hmm. Like, how's it going to work? How's trans community going to work? If like, there's a couple of like tech startup, mm. you know, cause I think that's what's going to, I think that's how it's going to happen. And mm-hmm. like, and, and I think money is something that's really difficult to talk about in the yeah. community because everybody wants to seem like it's egalitarian, but you know, some people, so you have people who have trust funds who, who pretend that they don't have trust funds and people who don't have trust funds pretending that they're like, you know, have as many beamers as they want. And like, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's just, it's like nobody actually knows because no, everybody's afraid to say what they have. Mm-hmm. And um, so the thriller aspects have a lot to do with drama about like hiding who does and doesn't have mm. money as they're like making transactions and mm. moves. Wow. That sounds, that sounds thrilling. I am, I can't wait to read that. That sounds really exciting. That sounds great. Oh my God, Jordan. I can't believe I haven't read this book yet. I'm so excited based on your interview. And I have to say like every friend in the CYG family has been recommending it heartily. So I'm so stoked. Yeah, you got to get on it, Gina. And once you do, um, call me and Anne and we'll have a, a three-way book uh, book club. Because <laughs> I know Anne was also obsessed with this book. <laughs> I know. Anne's favorite kind of book club is like just randomly send her a voice note of something you loved. No formal <laughs> process, no planning. You know, we save yeah. the wine chats for another time. But yes. the book club happens in the voice notes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Love it. Well, hope everyone has a chance to read it. And we will see you on the internet. See you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your faves. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. Call us back. Leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books, but we are really partial to independent stores. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our producer is Jordan Bailey. Special thanks this week to Chelsea Daniel. This podcast is executive produced by Gina Delbach.